Hello everyone, Alejandro Esquivel here, and welcome to another episode of the Economics of Everything podcast with yours truly, Alexandre Vieira. And here on the Econ of Everything, we believe that economics in its purest form is the study of how people make decisions. Thus, our goal is to make our audience informed decision makers in all parts of their life. We will do this by breaking down topics we look at with data, research, and practicing theories. We'll also be looking at topics critically and agnostically, which discourages empirics to employ an economic lens. See, the goal of our team is really to break down the complex nature of economics to help you employ critical thinking strategies and holistic approaches on topics to help you become better decision makers. Hello, everyone. Alejandro Esquivel here. A quick side note about this episode. This is one of our earliest podcasts, so the audio quality hadn't been really figured out yet, and it may be a little bit distracting at some points in this podcast, but just know the message that we get across in this podcast is awesome. Chris White, former Goldman Sachs corporate bond trader and now CEO of BondClick, which you'll hear about in this episode, and I dive deep into the corporate bond and debt markets that we currently see. And also, another quick side note. Some of the information, although maybe a little outdated, is still very much prevalent and useful in today's economy. Hope you all enjoy. Thanks. Hello, everyone. Alejandro Esquivel here with the Economics of Everything. Today, we will be talking about an interesting topic with a fellow professional in the finance world, uh, Chris White, CEO of BondClick. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. I, I hope that we can um, get a lot of information to your audience in, in a condensed period of time. So I'm ready to get at it. Awesome. So Chris, can you uh, kind of break down for the people who don't know what a corporate bond is and for who those who are in love with equities and in love with, you know, kind of other types of securities, can you break down what is, you know, a corporate bond? Sure. So companies have tons of options on how they want to finance themselves. And, and for most people are familiar with the equity option in which a company sells a piece of themselves um, in the form of equity and then um, the public's able to trade their company. But another option, and it's actually become the, probably the most popular option with U.S. corporations over the past decade, has been to issue debt. And uh, debt is just an IOU. It's it, you borrowing money today, and you're going to pay it back three, four years from now. And uh, you're going to compensate people by paying them a, 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 an interest rate on, on top of the money that you've borrowed. Um, so it's pretty straightforward in that, in that way. Um, so corporate bonds are, are basically what we uh, classify as being debt um, securities that are tied to corporations. And the way that corporate bonds work is if you are the owner of a corporate bond, um, you're waiting for that corporate bond to mature. When it matures, you're paid back the full principal of the corporate bond, which is typically a thousand face. So uh, very simplistic uh, definition, a corporate bond is an IOU. Awesome. So you, you mentioned one thing that I uh, I found difficult as a retail investor myself to be able to invest in these corporate bonds is the $1,000 face. Um, you know, it, it does take a little bit more than, you know, just normal equity uh, to, to buy into. Um, but how do you think they can be used as kind of like a secure to be structured into your portfolio and to see uh, some gains and some alpha in your portfolio? Well, 99% of retail investors, I, I would guess, are invested 
in the corporate bond market through bond funds. They're not invested directly um, or, or into individual bonds. Some of the savvy investors will buy individual bonds and there are actually some massive returns that you can get from them. But Alejandro, I think what you've raised is the issue. It's the a thousand face. Like most equities, when they get to a certain um, a certain value, they'll split because um, the, the unit size has become too big for individual investors. We, I think it's more of just a psychological thing that the, the value of the stock hasn't really changed. Uh, but people like uh, buying stocks that are uh, lower in price than necessarily buying stocks that are higher in price, even though from an outstanding um, share standpoint, they could be the same value. So actually what we've seen in some other uh, parts of the world, like for example, in Australia, when they have uh, government debt, when they want to make it retail friendly, what they do is they create digital certificates that are one fortieth the face value of a government bond, which is uh, about a thousand dollars. So people can right. buy uh, sub pieces of the uh, of government debt. Um, in, in Australia. This is actually something that was popularized in the equity market too. Have you, have you ever heard of um, E-minis? Do you know what those are? Uh, yeah, like I, I've heard them in like regards to like E-mini futures, um, like trading on like, a, you know, an index or something like that. It, I, I didn't know uh, you could trade them on bonds as well. Well, no, they, they, it's not that you can trade them on bonds. It's just that they had a similar problem with the S&P 500 where um, years ago, uh, the face of the S&P 500 buying that ETF just got too expensive for retail or, or the numbers just looked too big. So they created subcontracts called E-minis, which are basically retail friendly sizes uh, for trading the S&P 500. So, you know, we see this time and time again, I think with your, with your, your assessment's right. One barrier to entry for retail getting involved with corporate direct corporate bond trading is just, if I've got $10,000, I'd, I'd like to have more than just 10 units of something right so that kind of gets into um you know why why corporate bonds are critical to know um for the retail investor um you know people are kind of starting to start to structure their portfolio in their own hands um why is it you know critical for these people who are you know maybe just starting out maybe have been in the retail side of things or maybe have some exposure to institutional investing um that they start to you know, purchase these corporate bonds. Um, and like you said, only being able to, with a $10,000 portfolio, only being able to have 10 increments of these instruments. Well, just for your audience, you don't have to be an expert, but you can't be ignorant to how the corporate bond market works If you and, and, and what's happening in it. If you're ignorant um, on, on that topic, uh, you're basically exposing your, yourself to making some big mistakes with your portfolio. So the reason why it's important to know what's happening with the corporate bond market is think of the stock market as, as basically telling you what's happening with a company presently. And people are reacting to news um, instantaneously on the stock market. But the bond market is an indication of how people view the company in the future because the the value of that company's debt is directly based on whether or not you believe the company will be able to pay off its debts. So, for example, um, you know, Elon Musk famously smoked pot on a, on a podcast. I don't know if you with that. Uh, that yeah. Right. So he, the CEO of Tesla uh, lights up on the 
um, most popular podcast in the world, I think Joe Rogan's podcast. And so uh, in the bond market, it was really interesting to watch what happened with Tesla's debt. The debt that was going to be maturing in 18 months, price hardly moved. But the debt that was going to be maturing in five years fell off a cliff. And that's because what, what market practitioners were saying was, we believe Tesla's going to be able to pay its obligations over the next 18 months, but probably not five years from now. And so when you're making a, an investment, even in the equity market, it's important for you to know the treatment of that company's bonds because it's going to provide you some insight as to whether or not it, it it's sound for uh, a longer period of time. Definitely. Um, one thing I'd like to mention too is, uh, you know, corporate debt saw its highest level in quarter four of 2019. Um, and, you know, we're kind of seeing uh, some speculations on is, is this debt level attainable um, and sustainable for the years to come. Um, so one thing I just wanted to ask you about is, you know, do you see any correlation between, you know, mortgage-backed securities in, you know, early 2000 or later 2006, early 2007, moving into uh, 2008 and corporate bond um, corporate debt levels now? Well, th this actually goes back to why it's important to not be completely in the dark about what's happening in the corporate bond market. Because um, what's what's happening now is in order to stabilize companies, it, you know, in the U.S. economy, what the what the government's doing through the central banks is they are buying the debt of corporations. That's actually never been done before. Um, we've seen, you know, central banks buy other bonds in the past, like residential mortgage-backed bonds. Um, we, they certainly buy treasuries. But when a, when the government's buying the debt of a corporation, it's effectively lending them money and uh, artificially keeping the cost of borrowing down for that company. This is another reason why it's important that retail investors become more aware of what's happening in the bond market, because if you own, let's say you own two auto stocks, one's Ford, one's GM, um, and let's say the Ford uh, Ford is having its bonds purchased by the U.S. government, but GM isn't. Ford is a better investment because the cost of debt capital for them is going to be lower than what it would be for GM. And that gives them a material advantage. We could be talking about hundreds of millions of dollars saved because the government stepped in and is directly purchasing their debt. Now, how, like you mentioned the parallel with um, mortgage-backed securities. If, if we go back to the mortgage-backed security issue that happened in or reared its ugly head in 2008, it came about because um, many people were borrowing money uh, who probably didn't have the underlying qualifications for the amount of uh, loans that they were taking out for mortgages. And because these loans were then being packaged up and security, securitized, the banks that were, were initially lending the money didn't care. Does that, Alejandro, does that pretty much sound like the, the standard story on the mortgage-backed crisis? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, my take on it is definitely, um, you know, the, the regional and even the, you know, the community banks were um, doing their due diligence on these people. And um, it clearly was not enough to, you know, realize the their, their state of financials. So I think that's a, that's a great take. So what, um, well, well, so on that point, if that's what was happening for the mortgage-backed market and ended up causing a problem, I'll just tell you that, that since 2008, the exact same thing has been happening in the corporate bond market. So replace individuals looking to buy homes 
with companies looking to borrow money. And what, we, what we've had is a, an artificially low interest rate environment that's been held in place by central banks since 2008. What, that, what what's, that's created is an environment in which companies that really aren't qualified to borrow a bunch of money are able to borrow a bunch of money. And not only have they been able to borrow a bunch of money, they've been able to do so at record low interest rates. So the people lending the money, which ends up being, you know, the investing public, isn't getting compensated in terms of an interest rate return that is uh, comparable to the risk that they're taking on. Definitely. Um, one thing that I could definitely see this being, uh, you know, kind of a discrepancy between is, you know, issuing debt against, you know, dividend payouts. Is, have you seen like any companies doing that recently? Well, what we've seen is we've seen companies like Apple that didn't have a, um, a bond issued prior to 2008. And Apple now has over $100 billion in outstanding debt. And, and why did why did Apple do that? Well, if you if you go to if you talk to the CFO or the treasurer at Apple, um, interest rates got they'll tell you that interest rates in the debt market, so debt financing, got so low that it made better sense for them um, for long term financing to actually uh, take on debt and then use that debt to do things like buy back their own stock. So another. Another thing to consider as an investor, even if you, you've never invested in a bond, is there are lots of companies out there that are using the proceeds from bond sales to then uh, you know, buy back their own stock in a way that uh, obviously it increases the, the value of their stock in the market because they're increasing demand. They're doing this, these companies, yeah. because then when they pay a dividend, they're paying that dividend to themselves as well as the other investors. So it's a way of, of lowering the cost of equity capital because anytime you issue equity, people assume that, you know, hey, there's got to be a dividend here. Where's the yield? Um, and, and so, okay, we're going to pay that dividend. But if a material amount of that dividend comes back to the company on a net basis, the cost of equity capital is lower. So that's what a lot of companies have been doing. Unfortunately, this sets up very dangerous conditions in the marketplace because, um, the, the true value or the underlying fundamental value of stocks and bonds have now been distorted. That, that's pretty surprising to hear that, you know, a well-renowned company like Apple has been, you know, kind of in this, you know, kind of hyper, uh, hyper, like elusive accounting practice of, you know, share buybacks through, you know, debt funded well, programs. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's, um, I, I don't know if we cap, capital, uh, characterize it as hyper elusive. You've given a, what the central banks have done is they've given a low to no interest credit card to corporations. What do you think they're going to do? Right. That's, that's definitely, uh, that's definitely an issue that lies within the interest rate environment that we've been in, I mean, for, uh, years now, um, and seemingly will be uh, continuing on down that path for a couple of years at least to come. Um, okay, so we kind of talked about you know what corporate bonds are. Um, we've dived into you know how they're um, being used for corporations, how they're being used for like fund capital expenditures. Um, now, you know why as a you know person just getting into their their structuring their portfolio retail investor, or even, you know, some experience on the institutional side, why do I care? Why do I, why do I, um, and why do I not know enough about corporate bonds? Well, 
Okay, the, the why do you care has to do with whatever your investment strategy is. I can tell you that some of the biggest trades for the year for retail investors were corporate bond trades in 2020. Um, because what, what we saw was a massive repricing of bonds. And then once the government announced that they were going to be backstopping a lot of these companies through direct bond buying, these bonds immediately came back to life. For example, like American Airlines bonds at some point in time were, were trading at, at 60 cents on the dollar and are now trading at 90 cents on the dollar. So, you know, if, if you're if you're really as an investor looking to uh, find all, all possible ways to uh to source alpha, then then you have to start looking at corporate bonds. That's why it's kind of important. The challenge, though, major challenge, and this is not just for retail investors. This is actually a challenge that is universal to all investors, both retail and institutional. The challenge is basic pricing information. Just as an exercise, um, if if I asked your audience to tell me what the current price of Microsoft equity is. Uh, you, they could tell me that in under five seconds. All you'd have to do is put MSFT, um, MSFT, which is a ticker for Microsoft, into your uh, Google browser, your Google search. And then the first thing that pops up is Microsoft, the equity, where it's currently valued at, and what, what's been the change on the day. Awesome. So now you know what a share of Microsoft costs. Microsoft has um, over $80 billion in outstanding debt. If I asked your audience to tell me what the current bid and offer is or what the current value is of the most actively traded Microsoft bond, that's a science project. And so th that, that lack of information and, and creates just such a high level of uncertainty that it, it, it just makes it very difficult for um, individual investors to trade something um, that they, they, they don't even have basic information on. Yeah, why does that exist currently? Why is there not a lot of data you know, that's open to the public um, that can be accessed easily? Because markets have different evolutionary time uh, lines. Uh, so not all mar markets uh, adopt the architecture that they need to modernize at the same time. So if we went back over 50 years, uh, the, what we're describing for the bond market for the retail investor is very similar to the way um, the equity market worked for retails and retail investors. Uh, the early 1960s, as a retail investor, the only way you'd really know what the price of a stock was, was in the newspaper in the morning. And I know m probably many of your audience will be like, what are you talking about? But um, I am old enough to remember when stock prices were put into a newspaper and you would just look at like all of the stock prices that were printed in the newspaper. That doesn't exist anymore today because all of the stock prices are now um, being um, distributed universally, uh, you know, and electronically. You're telling me I couldn't have just logged on to my Robinhood account and looked at the stock price no not not right at right? all and then and then an incident <laughs> happened and we actually uh at bonclake have been we've we, we've started something called a market structure throwback thursdays on linkedin and, and each each thursday we we basically make a post on our company page uh the bonclake company page about an incident that changed the evolutionary process of a market so um we recently posted about the the first flash crash in the equity market it was the flash crash of 1962 
and not a lot of people know about this, but what happened in, in on May 29th of 1962 was the start of basically a, a three-day dislocation in the equity market where uh, the equity market lost 30% of its value only to regain it all back within a three-day period. The retail investor during that turmoil had little to no information. And that started really the conversation about improving the way that data is organized. So then we get to 1971 and the, the first piece of architecture that you need for really creating you know, the, the underlying infrastructure to produce on-demand pricing information was NASDAQ. And NASDAQ stands for National Association Securities Dealers Automated Quotation System. All NASDAQ was, was a bulletin board of all of the bids and offers for unlisted stocks centralized on a current platform. And, and, and that piece of architecture then sparked innovation around price organization. The listed market followed suit in 1975. And so fast forward 45 years later, and you have on-demand pricing information that everyone has access to. The corporate bond market has not gone through that evolutionary process yet. What we do at BondClick is we've actually produced the NASDAQ for corporate bonds, and we're, and we're hoping that the process for improving uh, data you know, happens through us. Awesome. Yeah, so if there were to be a you know, general quotation system that's centered around corporate bonds. Um, what would you envision it look like? Well, we, we've we've built it, so I can I can tell you more more than just the vision. If we were having if we were having this conversation <laughs> uh, five years ago, I could it would be vision, but we've actually built it. So, um, what what it looks like is um, you have to first of all create something that it's called um, uh, a a montage. It's it's sounds really fancy, but what you're effectively doing is organizing all of the pricing information based on best bid and best offer. And that's done because what you're looking to do is encourage the price makers to um, not only consistently quote, but they have to also um, competitively quote. And so by organizing the information according to best bid and best offer, the best advertising for your price that you can get is if your price is actually um, listed as the best bid or listed as the best offer. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is it's really important that when this information is being shown to um, you know, the investor base that the price providers are revealed. So it's attributed pricing. And the reason for that is um, people will be more conscious of the consistency and the accuracy of their price if their name is tied to it. And then uh, the, the, the last you know, piece that we have, which is actually kind of, it's, it's, it's proprietary, it's something that nobody's ever done before, is um, to add a rankings uh, system um, to the uh, price providing process. So on an individual bond, we rank the dealers based on how well they've quoted that bond relative to all of the other dealers that have quoted that security. We do that because you start to tie um, good behavior to commercial rewards because people will engage with the price providers that are ranked highly. The same way that if you go on eBay and you see two people selling the same thing, but one of them has a higher seller rating, that's the person that you're gonna engage with. 
well, how do you get that higher seller rating? You get it by, um, you know, having integrity, sticking up, you know, sending people their stuff when they send you money, like all of those things. Well, if you, if you put that same concept right. into the bond market, what you what you've basically done is um, created an environment in which social control in, comp- improves the overall quality of data in the marketplace because everyone providing prices wants to be viewed as as being high quality. So, so that's how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow, it sounds like you've already been doing this with with BondClick. So. Um, you know, is BondClick used by institutional investors? Um, you know, how much how much order flow do you see currently on BondClick? Um, and you know, what what are your kind of next steps for this process? Do you ever see it coming to the well, retail absolutely. market? Absolutely. So where we are on BondClick is keep in mind we're a market data system. So when you say how much order flow do we see, we don't do any trades. All we do is organize the data. The trades can happen, the trades happen away from us. We're just the reference point. Think of us like the Kelly Blue Book, where the Kelly Blue Book doesn't do any trades. They're just providing the information so that the trading can happen, um, whether that trading happens, uh, uh, you know, electronically through a website or whether that trading happens on, on, you know, at a physical dealership. Um, In terms of what we have on our system, we have 34 dealers quoting right now. Um, there are probably about 40, 45 dealers in the marketplace, so we're missing a few. But um, we do have enough so that we cover about 90% of the traded market is quoted on our system. So it's got pretty comprehensive coverage. Now, in terms of this information getting into retail, it's all about distribution. We're, we're actively speaking with, um, with Yahoo Finance about incorporating our data into the Yahoo Finance ecosystem. Because what's amazing, like, Go on a Yahoo Finance right now. Go look up Microsoft. Go look up Apple. Go look up any sort of Ford. Look up any large corporation. They've got excellent information about you know the equity, the the options of of those uh, companies. But there is nothing regarding the corporate debt and how it's performing. Definitely, and I personally, um, you know, being the savvy investor I am and trying to structure my portfolio in the best value, um, without you know access to this pricing information, I could never even uh, begin to understand, you know, where, you know, where these bids and offers are coming from, these ask prices are coming from, and, you know, how to begin to, um, you know, extrapolate this, this data to uh, make well, a buying well, decision. It's not only, not only that, if you, if you look at like the treatment of the retail investor in the equity market, never before in the history of financial markets has the equity I mean, has the retail investor gotten better treatment than what they get um, in the current U.S. equity market? So the cost of trading, being able to access the best bids and best offers, um, whether you're sitting in your office as an investor or whether you're working on the desk at Goldman Sachs, you have equal access to liquidity, let's say, um, and, and, and equal treatment in terms of what you pay to access that liquidity. That is not the case in the bond market today. In fact, um, very recently, there was a lawsuit brought uh, where someone's alleging that uh, the dealers have been conspiring to rip off retail investors as they trade in the, in, in the market. Um, so that's an active lawsuit right now. Also, a, a friend of mine um, is a professor named uh, Larry Harris. He's a former chief economist at the SEC. He wrote a paper called 
uh, transaction costs and trade throughs, which is all about retail trading in the U.S. corporate bond market. His estimate was about uh, two thirds of a billion dollars. So six hundred and sixty seven million dollars a year um, is uh, wasted um, in terms of transaction costs uh, by retail investors because they're not getting access to the best price when they're trading corporate bonds. That that's uh, that's definitely a great paper to look into. Um, I personally am not, but I will definitely look into that. Um, so, how do these? You know, you're talking about transaction costs. How do you kind of break these down? You know, I've I've seen like markups. I've seen you know, um, rarely see markdowns, but also you know, just paying for the transaction itself. How do you? Where do you think the bulk of that six hundred sixty-seven? Um, well, what he is, used was you know, he looked from. at trace data which is in the corporate bond market, trace is the, um, it's, it's the tape that shows every single transaction. Uh, trace uh, was launched in July of 2002 and now covered every time there's a corporate bond trade, it must be reported and then it's broadcast. So there's at least that. And the whole idea around trace was to improve the market for uh, retail investors. So there was awareness even back then that you know, there's a, data is going to be helpful for making sure that the retail investor gets good treatment. But anyway, uh, Professor Harris took trace data and then um, compared it to the, the retail sized prints to where the bids and offers were on electronic platforms that 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 are out there called ECNs. Um, and what he found was that lots of the uh, trades were happening away from where the best bids and best offers were on those ECNs. And that's how he calculated, you know, just how much money was being lost. I think it's slightly inelegant, but I think he did the best job possible with the data that's out there. What we're trying to do with BondClick is centralize all pricing data. If you centralize all pricing data, then you have an objective benchmark or reference point for being able to know the quality of your trade. Because what everyone wants to know is like, okay, I bought the bonds at, and we'll use price terms, I bought the bonds at 99. The, the, the best bid for those bonds was 99 and a half. So I kind of missed out on a half point of alpha that I could have generated or, you know, or, or sorry, excuse me, the best yeah. offer was uh was 98 and a half excuse me I, I reversed things i was thinking in spread in terms of price so i've i've missed out on a half point right like i bought the bonds half a point more expensive than they were offered in the marketplace so you know how do you how do you judge the quality of your execution you need to basically know where was the market where was the visible market at the time i did the trade yeah and definitely just for uh you know the people who might not know what 98 uh, and a half to 99 means um, you know, 98 and a half means 98 and a half percent. I was trying to give a, um, an easy example with price. Let's, we'll, we'll talk about it really quickly. So let's just, um, there are two different price pricing protocols. We call them in the corporate bond market. You can trade a bond on price, which is the same way that you would trade an equity. Like, Hey, the bid is 99. The offer is 99 and a half, or you can trade a bond on something called spread. And when we're talking about trading bonds on spread, what we're saying is, we're going to trade the bond based on the number of basis points relative to an underlying treasury bond of a similar maturity. So I know I just said a lot there, but let me explain what that means. So when you are trading a corporate bond, 
there are two components of risk. There is what's uh, just credit risk, which is whether or not you believe the company will pay you back. And then there is something called interest rate risk. And interest rate risk is basically the risk that the interest rate environment will change and hurt the value of your bond. And the way that that would happen is, let's say prevailing interest rates in the market are 3% and you make a bunch of bond purchases. So now you hold bonds that have a, a yield of roughly 3% to be very sim simple. And then a couple of weeks later, prevailing interest rates in the market are now 4.5%. Well, all the bonds that you own have are now lower in value because they only yield 3%. And if you tried to sell those bonds, you would have to lower the price in order to match the prevailing interest rates in the market. So with corporate bond trading, in order to hedge out the interest rate risk, what's, what's normally done is when you buy a corporate bond, you have a corresponding hedge trade in an underlying treasury bond, which is the government security. And what that hedge trade basically allows you to do, so if I'm long the corporate bond, but I'm short the treasury bond, it doesn't matter where interest rates go. They could go up, they could go down, doesn't really matter. Because if, they, if, the, if the interest rates move against me, my short position in the treasury bond um, you know, balances out the losses that I've incurred on the, in the corporate bond. I know this sounds slightly complicated, but this is how the market works. So the way investment grade corporate bonds are, are quoted is they're quoted in something called spread. And what the spread is, it's the spread to the underlying treasury. So uh, uh, I'll use an example here. If you were going to buy a house and somebody said, hey, this house, it costs 25 Honda Accords. That's the way bonds trade when you're, you're saying, hey, I'm going to buy this bond. Oh, this bond, it's 150 over. 150 over what? Oh, 150 over the current five-year treasury bond. And that's how people trade them. So there's a prevailing market that's, you know, swaying between, um, you know, interest rates, uh, spreads to those, uh, you know, fundamental interest rates, which are uh, T-bills, treasury bonds, and, you know, those longer-term debt instruments that the government issues, that bonds are priced at there yes i mean in a lot of ways what bonds are really priced at depends on who the who the issuer is and a, a trick for all of your listeners mm -hmm. is if you want to uh when when you're talking about different bond markets the title of the bond market is directly related to who is issuing the bonds who's borrowing the money so the so anyway company. like <laughs> what what you now know is that when some like wall street professional who works at some bond desk at some bank when they say to you like Hey, yeah, I'm a bond trader. You can say, really? What market? And they'll say, oh, well, uh, emer emerging market corporate bonds. And they're, they think that you don't know what they're, that, what they're talking about, but you now do. And all of your listeners do. All they're doing is describing the issuers that make up that bond market. So it's just a little trick. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like uh, the corporate bond market is uh, pretty opaque. And, uh, you know, you're, you're working to make it a bit more transparent so you know we can we can blow off uh you know and start to structure our portfolios into uh into corporate bonds i think it's truly remarkable the mission that uh bond click is on well, well thanks a lot I, I think it's you know entrepreneurship in in this uh in this space is difficult because um uh, 
you know, you have institutions that, that have done quite well in the corporate bond market, so they don't really necessarily want to see any change. But I will, I will just sort of, you know, put something in the ear of, of all of your listeners here. Right now, at this very moment, in response to the COVID-19 crisis, taxpayer money is being used to bail out the secondary corporate bond market. So whether or not you wanted to be an investor in the corporate bond market, you are now if you're a taxpayer. And to me, this changes the complete discussion, the power dynamics around the discussion for transparency. We need transparency now in the corporate bond market more than ever to protect the taxpayer. The taxpayer shouldn't get abused as we bail out the corporate bond market. I think you would agree with that. Yes. Um, you know, if, if we had this type of information to go off of, we can definitely know what um, us as taxpayers are investing in and see if it's legitimate enough to. Well, um, not only that, how much, how, um, what were the transaction costs to the taxpayer to bail out this market? Because what's the, the, the way the action is going, the way that this facility is set up is that the 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 centralized credit facility isn't isn't trading directly with asset managers and bond funds it's trading directly with dealers so if a dealer goes and buys a bond in the market and sells it to effectively the taxpayer do you think they're doing that at the same price most likely not most likely not they're probably um, buying the bond at a lower price no. and then selling it to the taxpayer at a higher price but we have no idea what the price differential is between those two right. transactions. So um, it's just it's just super important that we, we get basic information in the market in order for it to function with greater integrity and, and ultimately serve the end investor, which is you and your listeners. Definitely. Thank you so much for coming on, Chris. Uh, it's been you know a great conversation, as always. Um, look forward to you possibly coming on again. Um, I think you've really given us a light on uh, what goes on in the corporate bond market currently. Well, my pleasure. And if your audience is interested in learning more about just corporate bonds or what's happening, I also do have a, a newsletter called uh, the Friday newsletter. And if you go to the, the website, you can sign up for it. But basically, it's just it, it it's, uh, aggregates all of the articles for the week that I read about the corporate bond market. So you can follow along as to what's happening and how it's evolving. But it's been a real pleasure. And um, this was fun. Thanks a lot. I also wanted to thank all of you listeners of the of another episode of the Economics of Everything podcast. We really do look forward to filling the world with more informed decision makers like you. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Econ of Everything, no G, and the Economics of Everything on LinkedIn and Facebook with a G. Also, you can contact us at theeconofeverything at gmail.com. And if you could all leave a like, comment, review, give us some feedback, what did you like, what did you not like? I would really appreciate it, and it would really help us make this podcast a better listening experience for you and more enjoyable and more fun for us as we get more interactive. The economics of everything, our interest is always in your future value.